Do you want to know why you give? You want to know why the envelopes are out on the table or in your chair? So that we can bring Jesus, the giver of life, to a lost and dying world. Every Monday afternoon, we've had a group of people meeting at Orchard Park this school year. This past semester, tomorrow is the last time that we meet. And if, if I'm missing something, somebody speak up. But I want to say we've seen, I know of at least four kids. There might have been five or six. My numbers might be off a little bit. That have asked Jesus to come into their lives and save them from their sins. That's why you give. That's why you give. You don't give just to sit here and be comfortable. You give so that Jesus can change everything in someone's life. That's why you give. That's why Sandra and I give. It's not because you're obligated to, it's because you want to. It's because you feel led to give, because Jesus does change everything. You give so that our little ones, as they walk out of here, they're taught God's word. They're taught what it means to know and follow Jesus. You give so, as Candace played the video for us, so that people across the world can hear the gospel message. That they can experience what true hope and what true peace is all about. Listen, I, I know that we're in the Christmas season and we have all the poinsettias and, and all of the, I mean, the decorations, the trees are beautiful. I wish I had one that big in my house. Mine's big, but it's not that big. But is, is it not amazing to you, as it is to me, how we have so commercialized Christmas, it's not even funny? Even Thanksgiving... It amazes me. Eventually, Thanksgiving's just going to be another day on the calendar. With Black Friday and all of this craziness that happens, it's going to be just another day. And for some, Christmas is just another day. We, we have commercialized Christmas so much that there's so many people out there that don't really know the true meaning of Christmas. Y'all have heard the old saying, all I want for Christmas is, and you fill in the blank. What if, what if we were to go into Christmas with this mindset, all I want to give for Christmas is? Think about that. All I want to give for Christmas is. And let's get away from this mindset of all I want for Christmas what if all you wanted for Christmas is to give someone else life change through Jesus? Well, you want to talk about blessed? That's blessed. And that's where we're going today. But I, I want us to just take a second and really think and reflect on what Christmas really means to us. What does Christmas really mean to you? What does it mean to you to celebrate Christmas? Is it more about what you give? Or is it about what you can get? It's been an incredible week here for this church. And seeing the life change in, in little kids. 
and seeing some of our children's ministries begin to flourish and, and jumpstart. The parade and having the opportunity not to just put on a banner for our church, but to show this community who we are and who God's called us to be. We're a little over a week from our pastor and his wife getting back from Africa. I told Mark the other day when we met, I, I might cry. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I might cry. And I don't want to put words in Mark's mouth, but man, it's been a long four months. And listen, what Mark and I feel as staff doesn't even compare to what Josh and Jennifer and Caleb and Megan and their kids feel. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Continue to pray for them. Continue to pray for Josh and Jennifer and Caleb and Megan and their families. I'm not going to be there, but I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they walk out of that tunnel. I'm excited for them. I'm excited for them. I'm excited if, if it happens, if they're able to be here that Wednesday night. I'm excited for that. Continue to pray for them. Listen, church, we're, we're blessed. Beyond imagination, we're blessed. Why can't we give? We should. We absolutely should give. Listen, this morning I thought we'd, we'd start in a, in a different way. Uh, with obviously Christmas is around the corner and, and we're getting Christmas shopping and we're doing all of the, this, this just craziness is going on and Sandra and I yesterday Graham and Grady aren't in here so I can share this y'all seen the elf on the shelf deal we've kind of avoided that and, and yesterday we broke down and we bought an elf And Sandra, going down the road, she said, how in the world are we going to come up with things up until Christmas? And I said, you don't have to worry about that. I got that under control. I can handle that. You want to know why? Because I'm left-handed. How many lefties do we have in here today? Wow. Hey, do y'all know left-handed people are more creative than right-handed people? Did y'all know that? I'm just saying, listen, don't shoot the messenger. I did some research. Studies show that left-handed people are more creative than right-handed people. I got some other interesting facts about lefties. In some sports, left-handed people have more of an advantage Lefties have a greater advantage of being a genius or having a higher IQ. I don't know about that one. Lefties tend to make more money. I don't know about that one either. Lefties are better at multitasking. Am I a multitasker? Am I a pretty good multitasker? Okay. I'm just not that coordinated, but I can multitask, evidently. I found this one funny, as I shared with the youth Wednesday night, I spend a lot of time on the road, so I see a bunch of crazy people on the road. 
driving. Apparently, lefties are better and safer drivers than righties. Apparently. That's debatable, right? Lefties have better memory than righties. Here's some disadvantage. By the way, I'm, I'm left-handed. Those of you that did not know. And both of my boys are left-handed. And the funny thing about that is I pray, God, please do not let them be left-handed. Why did I do that? Because I'm a baseball guy. And I wanted them to be right-handed because when I played baseball, I wanted to play in the middle infield. All right? Matt's a baseball guy. He's sitting back there. Matt's a big guy. And Matt was a pitcher. And he can pitch. I'm not a big guy. And I'm left-handed. And I couldn't pitch. So you know what that meant? Because I was left-handed, I couldn't play in the middle infield. And I wasn't a big guy. So I didn't pitch. I couldn't throw hard enough. And I'm short, so I couldn't play first base. Because that's traditionally where they put lefties. So I had to play in the outfield. And so I prayed, God, please let them be right-handed. So at least, maybe they can't pitch, but at least they could play middle infield. And I'm not kidding. Both of our boys are true lefties. I'm not kidding. They are both left-handed. So now all I can do is pray, God, please let them have Sandra's side of the family's genes so that they grow tall and they can play first base or they can pitch and have that advantage. But there's some disadvantages to being left-handed. I've got two older brothers, and one of my older brothers, when he was learning to tie his shoes, my mom, being left-handed, was trying to teach him how to tie his shoes. Now, any of you that are left-handed and your parents are right-handed and tried to tie, teach you to tie your shoes, it's impossible. Because we tie our shoes backwards. I've been called backwards so many times in my life, it's not even funny because I'm left-handed. So a lot of the things that I've taught myself how to do, I mean, because I'm left-handed, I had to teach myself how to do those things. My dad's a mason, and Scott's in here, and my dad does a lot of work with Scott, and so my dad's right-handed, and so laying brick and block, guess what? My dad couldn't teach me. So I had to learn how to do it by myself. Tying my shoes, my mom could teach me, but I ended up teaching myself how to tie my shoes because I tied my shoes backwards from everybody else. You ever going to eat with somebody that is left-handed? If you ever notice, I always try to sit on the outside. You know why? Because we do this if we don't. Right? There are disadvantages. You will, you will rarely, rarely, rarely ever see me write on a dry race or a chalkboard. You want to know why? Because when I write, I race. When I write, I race. This part of my hand, I lay it down and it ends up erasing everything that I write. I could not stand notebooks when I was in school. The three ring binder notebooks because I had to take the paper out just to write because I couldn't get my hand inside of the notebook to write. Mouses on computers... Mine is backwards. Most righties have theirs on the right side with the inside clicker as the clicker. Well, mine is on the opposite side with the inside clicker on the inside. I use my mouse on the left side. Computer keys, have you ever noticed on a desktop, the numbers are on the right side? You ever notice that? 
How's a lefty supposed to do that? Did you know they made left-handed scissors? Are you kidding me? See, if I wanted to sue somebody, I could sue somebody for discrimination against lefties. Could I not? And in the crazy world that we're in, I'd probably be successful. Are you kidding me? Which leads me to this. I've always been called backwards because I'm left-handed. So I wonder, was Jesus left-handed or right-handed? Now, we're not going to get in a huge theological debate about that. That doesn't really matter. But my point is, what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was completely backwards. Completely backwards from what the people during that time were being taught. Because what they were being taught was nowhere near what the Old Testament stood for. And so Jesus comes in and he begins to teach in a way that is backwards, that is the complete opposite of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching and living by. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. As we look in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at two verses real quickly together as a church family. We're going to look at verse 5 and verse 6 in Matthew chapter 5 and break these down real quick together. It says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this opportunity and this day. The very breath of life, the gift of life that we have through your son Jesus, we are humbled by it. And pray that as we look and study your word this morning, God, that you would come, you would meet with us, you would walk among us, you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, you would challenge us, you would change us, you would convict us, God, through the power of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus begins what we know as today, as the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he opens it up with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Basically, attitudes that we as Christians should have. Attitudes that we should live by as Christians. And, and you've got to imagine, Jesus is on, on the side of a mountain. Right? He's elevated from the crowd that's followed him. And the crowd, as he's looking down, this was uh, a lowly crowd. This was the crowd that was not looked upon as the rich, the well-fed, the wealthy. They, they, this was not that type of crowd to most people's eyes. But this was the crowd that was lowly. This was the crowd that was hungry, that was thirsty. This was that group of people. 
And Jesus begins because everything that they had been taught, everything that they had learned to live by from the Pharisees, Jesus begins to teach them the exact opposite. And showing them that, do you want to be blessed? you want to know what true blessedness is? This is really what it means. This is really what it looks like. I, I can't imagine being in that crowd, sitting there listening to the words of Jesus, sitting there listening to his teachings and going, boy, this is the complete opposite of everything that I've ever known. The complete opposite. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Let me show you. He uses the word meek. Meek. That word could be defined today by many as a person who is weak. A person who is unwilling to stand up for, for what is right. Or stand firm on a particular position. They're easily persuaded. Is generally a weak-minded, weak-willed individual today. That would be considered, that person would be considered a meek person the word meek, though, it really means one who has a, an attitude towards others as humble. That is humble. They're teachable. They're a teachable person. A meek person doesn't have to be right all the time. Watch this. One, one commentary I looked at said, that person that doesn't have to be right all the time, that's a meek person who will live a life of strength under control. He went on to say, I prefer to read this verse this way, a blessed person, they're blessed because they choose to obey. An image that, that came to mind when I thought about meek or being humble is that of a horse. I've got a set of, of bridles that, that were given to me. It's been a long time ago. Somebody came by my office at Earl's Grove and set them down on my desk. And anyway, you, you put those set of, of, of bits in, in a horse's mouth, and as you pull back, that horse tends to react, doesn't it? And however you pull back and, and however you, you choose to turn that horse, it turns, right? Some Greek historians, they use the very same word for Jesus to describe a horse broken to a saddle. A meek horse. Because it's under control, yet it's still powerful. Think about that. A horse. A horse is a powerful animal, isn't it? And under control can be very useful. It was a symbol of strength in the Greek world. And they considered a wild and untamed horse. They rendered it pretty much useless. It was a useless animal because it was wild and untamed. However, if a horse is broken... 
It can be used for all kinds of tasks in which it was created for. A.W. Tozer, he said this, he said, A meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he stopped feeling fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. He knows at the same time, though, that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. Watch how he ends this. In himself, he's nothing. In God, he's everything. You see, that's what it means to be humble. That's what it means to be meek. Is to understand our position in Christ. And that's the fact that in ourselves, we are absolutely nothing. But in Christ, we are everything. That's powerful. That's a powerful motto to live by and to remember. And you know, so often going through our everyday lives, getting caught up in the commercialization of Christmas, we tend to forget that simple truth. That we are nothing without Christ. We're nothing without Christ. But if we come to a place in our lives where we, we recognize our need for Him and we hunger ourselves we take on that nature of meekness in ourselves God begins to shine his glory through our lives and he tells the people as they're there on that mountainside he says look blessed are those who are meek for they will inherit the earth that is mind blowing to these people these were not the people that had arrived. These were not the people that owned half a city. These were not the people that were successful businessmen and women. No, they worked for these people. And Jesus tells them, listen, you want to inherit the earth? Humble yourself. Take on an attitude of meekness. Jesus gave us an incredible example in Matthew chapter 11. He said, take, take upon my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. Christ was meek and lowly. Now I thought about that for a second, and I thought about a couple of pretty funny movies or TV shows, and thought, well, Christ was meek and lowly in heart, so did that mean he looked like Napoleon Dynamite, or did he look like George Costanza? No, that, that wasn't what he was talking about. Not at all. He's the Son of God, who held all power in his hands. He was a carpenter, he was a farmer, he, he grew up. A carpenter's son. 
before he began his earthly ministry. And then he began to perform miracles as he began his earthly ministry. He performed miracles. He, he healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave life everlasting. Because he's the son of God. And when it came time for his crucifixion, he stood silent in front of his accusers. Wow. That is a picture of what it means to be meek and humble. Then in verse 6, he tells the people, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, the most common Old Testament word for righteousness is straight. And in the New Testament, that word means equal. But in a moral sense, they both mean right. That word righteousness. In reality, Jesus didn't come in and offer a new interpretation of righteousness. That wasn't his goal at all. Rather, he, start, he, he, he desired to reestablish the true meaning and the true definition of what it meant to be a righteous person. As the law and the prophets stated in the Old Testament. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they were going the complete opposite direction. They thought of themselves as the ones who were setting the standard for righteousness. Think about that for a second. They thought that much of themselves that they thought they were the ones setting the standard for righteousness. And Jesus shocked them all when he said later on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. It's a complete 180 from everything that they had been taught, everything that they had learned. We find one of the first mentionings of, of righteousness and what it means and what it looks like to be righteous in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, you've got the story or the account of, of Noah and, and building the ark. And here's what it says in verse 9. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. This is what God says about Noah in verse 9. He says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. What does it mean? What does it look like to be righteous? The life of Noah. God said he was a righteous man. You flip a page over or so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. What does it mean to be righteous? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of his, what? Righteousness. You want to be righteous? The Bible tells us that we're to seek him first in all things 
You know, this is the hardest part. Though it's the most simple part, but it's the hardest part for us to really wrap our minds around. The latter part of that verse in, in chapter 6 says, what? And he takes care of everything else, right? And all these things shall be added unto you. That's it. That's it. You go and you read and you study the, the life of Noah and this whole account of building of the ark. All, all he did was pursue God and His righteousness. And everyone around him thought he was crazy. Everyone around him had no idea why he was doing the things that he was doing. But it did not matter to Noah because he continued to pursue God's righteousness. He continued to remain and be faithful. And in our lives, Jesus is simply asking us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can we obtain that by ourselves? No, the Pharisees and scribes, they show us that. Can't be done. But through Christ, we can. We can pursue His righteousness. And trust that everything else he'll take care of. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those blessed, when it comes to the Beatitudes, those that were blessed were not the scribes and the Pharisees. Not even close. But it was the poor in spirit were the ones that mourned, were the ones that were meek, were the ones that were merciful, were the ones that hungered and thirst for righteousness, was those that were pure in heart, those were the people who were blessed. All because of a relationship that they had with Jesus. I love the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and the fact that it asked us the question this morning, where's your place in God's story? You know, as I look at the people that Jesus is teaching here, and, and, and all I have to go by is commentaries that I read. But when I look and I read about those people, those people were simply looking for their place in God's story. And Jesus tells them, this is all you have to do. It's all you have to do. You see, it's a change of attitude across the board. It's a change of attitude. A place where you, you recognize and you humble yourself because you're thirsting and hungry for something. Something more than just yourself. See, because as Christmas comes, you, you know what's going to happen, right? We're going to get things. And, and even kids, as soon as they open gifts, they end up playing with a box more than they do the toy. Right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the living room and I've twirled kids around in these big boxes with a toy sitting over there in the corner because they love playing in the box. And as adults, we're going to get something. 
And we're either going to take it back, we're going to put it on the shelf, or we might wear it a little while, but we're going to get tired of it, or it's going to wear out. You see, there's no satisfaction. There's no fulfillment. There's no joy in that. But when we come to a place where we understand and we realize what it truly means to be blessed, what it truly means to be blessed is to know Christ. And know that it's, it's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just coming down and wanting to join a church and be baptized. It's way more than that. It is about a relationship. It's a daily, constant grind of pursuing and wanting to know more of who Jesus is what He's done for you and I, and how we can pursue His righteousness. You see, you pursue His righteousness. You humble yourself and you pursue His righteousness. Guess what? He takes care of everything else. But that's the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing for us to wrap our minds around. Because we want to do it ourselves. So my challenge this morning, will you humble yourself? This Christmas season, will you humble yourself? Take on the attitude of Christ and humble yourself. And this Christmas season, pursue His righteousness. His righteousness. And come to a better more complete understanding of what it truly means to be blessed. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the purpose that you've given each and every one of us. God, I pray that if there's somebody here this morning that still doesn't know or maybe they're unsure of where they fit in your story, God, I pray that you would reveal that to them as clear as day this morning. And God, I also pray that as we are in this Christmas season and the day comes where we get to to celebrate with families and we get to see kids open gifts and presents, God, help us not to forget the greatest gift ever given, the greatest gift ever known to man, That's your son, Jesus, who you sent to this world so that we could have life 